right, so we are uh, going to be in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 today is what we're uh, looking at. So for, you know, those that are new this morning and first time in here uh, at Restoration for the past many, many weeks, we've been going over uh, the Old Testament and uh, and now we're in the middle of Exodus. And so, um, you know, I, I thought about stepping out and doing a different passage for Easter, but this actually fits pretty well with, uh, with a lot of what we're celebrating this morning. And so uh, we're going to continue on in Exodus today and look at chapters 33 and 34 and talk through what's, what's going on, uh, what's going on there. And just so give you some context and recap, um, what we know so far in the story of Exodus is that, you know, Moses has led the people out of slavery in Egypt, um, and he did so through the many plagues that he did upon the people of Egypt, and uh, chiefly in the uh, the taking of the firstborn um, is when Pharaoh turned and finally said, you know, let my people, you know, that, that the people can go out and worship the Lord, and so the people left, and Pharaoh's army chased them. They came to the Red Sea. And as you know, the Red Sea is parted and the people, all million plus of them, walk through the Red Sea into the other side. Um, and they're wandering in the wilderness there. And um, while they're there in the wilderness, they cry out for food. They cry out for water. And God graciously provides for them uh, food from heaven, water out of a rock. Uh, enough to fulfill the thirst of all these people. Um, and and so finally, as they're continuing in their journey and all these miraculous things have happened to them, the Lord calls Moses up onto Mount Sinai. And we talked about uh, Mount Sinai and how at the time when the Lord came to speak to Moses, it was literally just this mountain covered in flame, just like a volcano full mountain. And, and God says, yeah, you know, Moses, come on up. I want to talk to you. And we talked about how crazy that moment must have been for Moses. Um, and so Moses goes up. And while he's there, Moses reveals, or God reveals to Moses the Ten Commandments and uh, shares those with him, writes them on two tablets uh, uh, for him. And Moses then comes um, comes down to the people after receiving from the Lord this revelation of what it means to be the people of God, the people of this God who has saved them out of Egypt. As, you know, as we remembered, uh, the, these people had been really like, they, they hadn't really had any connection or relationship with their God while in Egypt, other than the stories of many, many years, 400 plus years uh, back of story that they had been sort of disconnected from. And so they're getting to know this leader of them, their, their Lord, their God, afresh. And so, uh, so Moses has revealed the, the Ten Commandments. And uh, while he's there on the mountain, the Lord is revealing himself to Moses. Uh, the people at the base of the mountain are getting restless. And Moses is there for 40 days. And so, you know, it sort of makes sense. And we sort of feel how long... A period can be in these past days while we've been in stay-at-home orders in our own worlds, right? 
we, we feel how long 40 days can be when you've been separated from what is normal. And so that's what was happening to them. They were separated from what was normal. What was normal was that Moses was leading them and guiding them and, and taking them one step at a time through the desert as the Lord would lead him. And so imagine 40 days being separated from the one who's been kind of the mediator, the leader of his people. They have questions. And so they start to get restless. And in fact, they get so restless that they make themselves a god out of an image, out of cat, out of gold. They make a calf out of gold. And they begin to worship it and praise it for being the, the one who led them out of Egypt. So at that time, then Moses comes down and sees what is happening, throws the tablets down and they break. And, uh, you know, you guys remember the story. And so it's in that context, in that backdrop of the, the story of the Exodus, that the Lord comes to Moses and says, OK, it's, it's time to depart from Sinai. They've been there at this point months, at least three months, maybe up to nine months they've been here. Uh, sitting at the base of this mountain, waiting for the Lord to lead them to the next spot. And so finally the Lord comes down and he says, uh, depart, go up from here. Uh, Exodus 33 verse 1. And the people whom you brought out of Egypt in the land to the land which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so finally the Lord is, is calling them to go on, to move forward into the promised land. But something different has happened here. There's been a shift here at the very beginning of verse uh, chapter 33. And I won't read, you know, the fullness of, of these passages because there's a lot here. But uh, but I want to just explain what's happening. The Lord says, it's time for you to go. And he says something interesting. He says, I'm going to send an angel with you. But I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel to take you into the promised land, but I'm not going to walk with you to the promised land. You're going to be now led by an angel rather than my presence. So while it sounds powerful and amazing that an angel is leading them, they're distressed. And uh, at the, it says the verse four, chapter 33, verse four, when they heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Because they knew that something had broken between them and the Lord. They had sinned against the Lord and the restoration had not been complete. Instead of going with him in their presence, he sends an angel to lead them. They know this is still part of the judgment. And so what happens is for a period of time, um, Moses is interacting with the Lord still individually in the tent of meeting is what it's called. And so uh, this tent of meeting, it's actually the same word as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the tabernacle. Uh, but here it's very much a different picture. You see, it's important that we understand what the Lord was trying to reveal to this people. The people of Israel is a people of revelation. God has revealed himself to this people. And so God had been revealing to Moses how they ought to follow the Lord, 
and how they ought to worship the Lord. And how they ought to worship the Lord is very different than the people of uh, Israel's world at the time was worshiping. And so we, we see these differences happening in the way that the worship place is actually set up. So I'm going to do a little bit of explaining here about what's going on. In those times, when you would worship a god, what you would do is you would build an altar, like a box, with some you know sort of beautiful statues on it, and those were the gods. And in front of those gods, you would place a spot where you would sacrifice something, a, a bread offering, a drink offering, something you would pour out or present to the gods and say, see what I have brought to you, O gods. And so the picture is that here's a, an image of some god you're worshiping, and here's what you have brought to that god. And the god is in, in visual connection with what you have brought. And so that's how people used to worship at the time. But what God, and, that, and that's how the people of Israel ended up setting up their own gods. In the same way, they built a calf and put an altar right below it so that the gods would see their offering. Our God is different than that. It's not about the offering that we bring that makes our relationship. It's about what God has done for us. And so God wanted to display that it is not by our work, but rather by our faith in a God who saves. And so uh, so he reveals to Moses on the mountain what that would look like in a physical structure. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's called the tabernacle. And there's a holy place where the, the ark, the, the representation of who God is, is there. And in God's representation, there's not an image to be worshipped. Rather, there are images worshipping Spirit, two angels just bowing before an empty seat. The picture is that God cannot be represented by something that we form or fashion. And so God, this Holy One, is in the Holy of Holies. Very important. It, it's a completely enclosed space with no light source. That's also important. God is a light unto himself. Okay? He needs no other light source. And, and as you go out in the picture that God revealed earlier in Exodus to the people, it, it, you go out to a, most, uh, a holy place. And in this holy place is a picture of the heavens, uh, a uh, lampstand, a, a bread of the Lord's provision, uh, a, a beautiful incense that is, uh, that is in the space, um, and in the most holy place, you have it surrounded by angels. In the holy place, it's, it's surrounded by beautiful um, uh, draperies. And then outside of that is a courtyard. And it's in the courtyard where the altar is placed for offerings to be brought. And so when we bring offerings in, in the way the Lord revealed it to the people of Israel, you're bringing the offering, and by faith, through these different barriers, you're saying, my God is the one who saves, and I give this as an offering to him, and by faith I am saved, not by this offering. And so then for the people, this is the important part for this text, for the people, that tabernacle, that courtyard and tabernacle are in the middle of the camp of the people. Okay, so 
grab onto that. This worship spot is right in the center of this people that is moving about in the wilderness. So in the center of it is the tabernacle, and all the people are supposed to be camped all around it. So what happens when instead of waiting for the Lord to speak, they go ahead and make their own gods, God comes down and says, and this separation has occurred. And so instead of having a tabernacle that is in the midst of the people, right in their presence, we have this situation in uh, Exodus 33, 7 and following, where Moses is still the only one connecting with God in a, in a revelation manner. And he's doing it outside of the camp, it says. It says, verse 7, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, not in its midst, far off. And he called it the tent of meeting. And so when people saw Moses go in, they would stand. And if they were believing on the Lord, they would worship from their own tents in their own homes. And while that seems like a beautiful picture that might connect with how we're doing it now, it's not what God desired for them. What God desired for them was them to be together in the courtyard and surrounding this tabernacle, worshiping the Lord in his presence among them, not far off, beyond them. And so God has this sort of intermediary time where he is speaking to Moses still to lead the people, but they are separate in some way. And what happened and what we see in this passage is that um, throughout chapters 33 and 34, Moses pleads for the Lord that he would be restored to them and that he would lead them into the promised land. He even, in fact, says, if you won't go with us, we ought just not even go. It's not even worth it to us to go if you don't go with us. And so he pleads with the Lord to go with them. And the Lord reestablishes his covenant with the people. At the end of chapter 34, we see that the covenant is renewed. Moses, uh, the Lord comes to Moses and says, you know, reveals again to him who he is, talks to him about that and says, I will, in fact, go up with you. My presence will go before you unto the promised land. And they make a new set of uh, Ten Commandments. Now, a cool thing that happens in this, and I'm we're, we're slowly getting to Easter here on, on this. I promise we're going to get to uh, an empty tomb in this message, I promise. But what happens here is that Moses is still the one kind of having the relationship with the Lord and talking to the Lord individually. And at the end of chapter 34, we see this picture shown of the shining face of Moses. And it says in chapter 34, verse 29, when Moses came down from Sinai with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to even come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders and congregation returned, and Moses talked with them. And after that, he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to them at Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking with them, 
he put the veil, a veil over his face. And so whenever he went in before the Lord to speak to him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he commanded. And the people would see the face of Moses and the skin that was shining. And Moses would put the veil back over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So the revelation of God's word was making a shining upon Moses' face. This interaction with our God, our creator, was making Moses' skin shine so much that it was like disturbing to the people. And they had him, hey, put a veil over your face because we like can't kind of like look at you real well. It's kind of disturbing. And so they put a veil over his face. And the reason that this is shining upon him is that he has had an interaction with the creator of the universe. The, the creator of the universe has spoken to him and shared with him something beautiful and amazing that he is the savior of his people and that he, he will be with them and his presence will go before them. And so as God is revealing his truth to Moses, Moses is shining in the face, this revelation of the character of God is shining upon him. So why do I bring that up? You might be ready to see where this is headed. You know, often when we when we think about Moses, we think about some incredibly holy, set-apart uh, person of which we cannot attain. We, we think of him as someone that we, you know, you know maybe like uh, professional ministers might be able to come, become a little bit like Moses. It's kind of what our heads go to. Um, but that's not really the picture we get in the New Testament at all, thankfully, praise God. Um, in, in fact, I think, you know, first, 2 Corinthians 3, which is where I'm going to move here in a second, uh, shows us that it, it, compared to how we think about Moses sometimes, this passage almost sounds like uh, like disrespectful to Moses, but it's actually a revelation to us and to what God has done in us through Jesus. See, again, the, the picture shown of, of worship that God gives of, of the tabernacle back in the Old Testament is to display this very fact that God is the Savior, not your sacrifice. Your sacrifice is not something, the thing that you bring to God is not something that saves you, that restores you to relationship. It is God who restores the relationship. And, and, so, and so that's the picture that's trying to be shown in the tabernacle. And so the same, that fulfillment of that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate picture of God giving himself for us is in Christ laying down his life for us. And when we get that, when that comes on us, we understand that, man, our faces, I tell you, shine, shine more than Moses. Our lives are changed more than even Moses. So 2 Corinthians 3, and I'm going to walk through this passage uh, slowly. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 18. 
Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians uh, in the city of Corinth back in uh, 100 AD. So he's saying, do we need recommendations from you? People are sort of talking badly against Paul. And, and so he's trying to, you know, say, hey, do I need to provide a reference for you? Do, do I need to pro provide references to you to display my authority? He's saying no. He says this, verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. He says, you, people of Corinth, you are to be read by others. You are our letter of recommendation. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on, this is going to sound familiar, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now listen to this. Now, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone is saying, you know, listen, the, the old covenant is a ministry dis, describing the fact that we are broken, describing death. It, it, it's describing that we are separated from God. It is carved on letters of stone. It is declaring our separation from God. Now, if that ministry carved on letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not even gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Okay, so God reveals the Ten Commandments and the revelation of who he is to Moses. And it is so powerful that Moses' face is shining when it comes out. He's blown away by this. He's he's like he's in awe of a, a, that God would interact with people in this manner, and it it shows the Lord's glory on his face. So, so if that glory is so much that the people of Israel could not even see it, then this ministry of the Spirit, this covenant. Uh, ministry of the Spirit, we have even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is a revelation of our sin, how much more the ministry of righteousness shall far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 3, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Now, again, the picture, Moses has been revealed so much that his face is shining and what paul is saying is that's nothing that is nothing right i mean the israelites couldn't even look on him because of how glowing he has he says that's nothing compared to what the spirit does within you corinthians our letter of recommendation when christ 
through, uh, through, when God through Christ restores you to himself. That glory is so much better because the glory that came in Moses was temporary and the glory that comes in Christ is permanent, verse 11. And so going on, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was brought to an end. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when we read, when the, they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is spirit, and when the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. You can see the whole picture. I mean, even of the tabernacle, right? The picture of the tabernacle where the Lord is spirit. He never was meant to be satisfied with just offerings of our works or our, our you know, uh, burnt bowl, you know, or whatever, like the meats and, and liquids. He wasn't meant to be restored to through that. It was always the fact that he is the savior. How much more glory in that than the thinking that we somehow uh, achieve it through just these sacrifices. What Paul is saying is that we are a revelation people, just like the people of Israel have been revealed how God is different than the people around them. Christ has changed us, and he's changing us from one degree to another. Now, does that mean that we walk around with, like, shining faces all the time? No, it doesn't. But it does mean the change that is in us is permanent versus temporary. We know that the Lord has saved us from our brokenness and restored us unto him. We're transformed into this image of Christ from one degree to another. And as Paul says in his letters, this all depends on what we celebrate today in Easter. It, it, it all depends on the whole structure of it, the whole plan of it depends on this one fact. At one point, I don't have it written down here, so slacker, slacker pastor. Um, at one point in Corinthians, um, Paul says, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15 or 2 Corinthians 15, one of two. Anyway, he says, if the resurrection is not true, then we, especially someone who's vocationally giving their life toward ministry, um, are to be pitied. He says we, should, we are to be pitied above all men. If the resurrection is not true, we ought to be pitied because we're spending our lives on nothing. But if it is true, it's a transformational power of the world. that we are being transformed in the same image of God from one degree of glory to another, coming from the Lord who is spirit. It's this 
directly a picture of what is happening. When Jesus was on the cross, as he's there, you know the story well. The veil that we've been, you know, studying in Exodus of the te- of the temple is torn. It's ripped in two. What's the description? No longer are you separate from my presence. No longer am I just among you in the midst of you, but you can come directly to me and come boldly to me by the blood of Jesus. My very presence can be within you now, not withheld from you, not not in some form of worship or some religious activity, but rather I can enjoy you all the days of my life. It is because of that sacrifice and chiefly because of the victory over death that Jesus had that we can come before Christ or come before God through Christ. So what do we do uh, with this? I think one of the big things that I want to, you know, challenge myself and a lot of, we've been talking about as we've gone through Exodus, how we relate a lot to the people of Israel uh, and, and their struggles. And that's true. You know, we do. Their struggles are real. They have lots of doubts. They go after their own uh, selfish desires and, and, uh, and things, and, and it, it's true. We, we are like them in a lot of ways. But what I challenge us to do is to realize that we're not them in Christ. Like, Christ has given us a new identity, and, and that identity is in his presence. And so, you know, whenever you you know, mess up in your house, you know, whatever, when you're not kind to your spouse, uh, you know, whenever we have those moments, the, the lies like to come in and say, see, you're just, you're just broken. You're just never, you're never going to change. You're always going to be the same. You're always going to keep being the way you are. You're never going to love the way Christ loves. Those are lies. The truth is, you've been called to a relationship with your creator in heaven. Who wants you to be more and more like himself as you see how much love he has for you. If God, the creator, would give his son on a cross, that's how much he loves you. And so that's how much I ought to love my spouse. That's how much I ought to love my kids. That's how much I ought to love every customer that comes into the coffee shop. That's how much I ought to love my boss. That's how much I ought to love as one who gives as much as I can for the glory of the Lord. And so our challenge to you is not to just resign yourself to being an Israelite, though we struggle like them and are like them in so many ways, but rather know that Christ has made you a a face shining brighter than Moses in Christ, that your presence and access to the God, the father through Jesus is even greater than and better. It's more, more perfect experience than even Moses had in his life here. 
and walk in that identity that Christ has purchased you for the Creator. That it is because of what God has done for you that you are in relationship with Him. And now, yes, we bring our offerings not out of uh, uh, a means of satisfying a God, but rather out of a means of simply giving glory to Him. I'm not doing it to earn His favor. I'm doing it to give Him glory and to give Him praise. I'm not giving it that He might be that He might see my offering like the like the pagans did, where they were putting the the offering right at the altar so that God could see it. I'm giving it, even if nobody sees it at all, I'm giving it. Not to be seen, but that he might get the glory in my life. That I might be more and more like him every single day. That's my prayer for each and every one of us in every context that we're in. Whether it's on Zoom calls from our homes or whatever. That we would give the Lord glory in everything we do. God, we're so grateful for, we're grateful for an empty tomb. We're grateful that you are the conqueror of death. And that one day, not today, but one day, even disease and war and all these things shall pass away. The lion shall lay down with the lamb. And Lord, until that time, we thank you. We thank you for the way in which each and every single day you're molding us more and more to be like you, to understand you better and better each and every day, that from one degree to the next, we might become more like Christ. From glory unto glory, Lord, that we might become more like you. Lord, I pray that we would not stand in uh, an identity of um, of status quo, but that we would stand in identity that you have purchased for us in Christ, that we are your sons and we are your daughters and that you love us with all that you are. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't try and appease you or please you or earn some sort of uh, gift from you, but that we would know that all you have given all for us you lay down all for us lord and for that we come with our lives and give you glory and we offer our lives as a sacrifice of praise to you that you might be honored we pray this all in jesus name amen